Tonight I'm in the book of Isaiah. I happen to be preaching through Isaiah at Grace Church. It'll be a long journey. It is a very intense book. Uh, I mean, very intense with such a focus on holiness and sin and apostasy, uh, but always pointing us to the God who saves. As you know, Isaiah is the great evangelist of the Old Testament. He's like John of the New Testament. And, uh, you know, he's got some very difficult, some hard words at times, but there's always grace in there. And tonight I want to look at a familiar text. Uh, You have probably heard a dozen messages on this in your life. Isaiah chapter 6, the call of Isaiah. But I hope, as it did with me, that it will refresh you. It will speak to you again. Because this Isaiah 6 is really critical to the book of Isaiah. I look at the first five chapters uh, as sort of the introduction for the book. Uh, The first five chapters of Isaiah set the stage for the call of Isaiah. And from what Isaiah says, I sense that, you know, he had sort of uh, accommodated uh, the culture that he was living in. He'll later confess that he was a man of unclean lips and lived amongst the people of unclean lips. But the first five chapters tell us how apostate uh, the southern kingdom, the people of God were in that day, how they were given to idolatry, to the pursuit of prosperity, and uh, they were just apostate, and they had ceased to be uh, the witness that God had called that nation to be there in that center of the known world. They were silent in their witness, and God's going to give them another opportunity As you know, Isaiah and Micah preach about the same time. They both preach to the southern kingdom. They're both living during the time when God is bringing his judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. They will see that northern kingdom destroyed by Assyria and Judah will witness it. And, you know, the hope is that Judah will see the consequence of rebellion in turn. Uh, And they do a little bit. But their judgment comes 150 years later because they continue to go down a path of of not taking God seriously. But God's going to bring them a message of grace with Isaiah. But before Isaiah can bring a message of grace, before you can bring a message of grace... You have to be first touched by grace. You have to be transformed by by grace. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, how God brings a man from silence to faithful witness. I'm going to talk about, and I'll summarize it in this statement. I'm going to talk about being a faithful bearer of an unwanted message to a hard-hearted people in a very difficult time. I want to challenge you tonight to become faithful bearers of an unwanted message. And that message is that only Jesus can save you, only the true living God can save you, to a hard-hearted people who don't want to hear in a very difficult time in the world. That's when and where Isaiah was called. 
And that's where you and I are called tonight. Let's look at our text, Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebrinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Nobody has to tell you that if you are a Christian and serious about what we confessed in the Apostles' Creed, that you're, you're living in a world that is antagonistic toward you and toward that message. There are a couple of things the world doesn't like about Christianity. Primarily that it claims that salvation is exclusively through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' words, you know, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The world does not like the exclusive message of the gospel. Secondly, it disdains our belief in the authority of God's word. That God has spoken That his word is authoritative, it's sufficient, it addresses all of life, and we submit to it, we bow to it. The world does not like authority, especially divine authority. And then probably thirdly, uh, Christianity is so disliked today because of its 
high moral standards, especially sexual standards, that we actually believe that apart from a monogamous, heterosexual marriage covenant relationship, that sex is forbidden, that it's wrong, apart from, let me say it again, a monogamous, heterosexual covenant marriage relationship, sex is forbidden, that we actually believe that cohabitation is wrong and fornication is wrong and masturbation is wrong and pornography is wrong and homosexuality is wrong and that we actually believe those things. This is the world we live in. If you believe the news, which I hope you don't, but if you believe the news, then you would think that you know, the entire world is against a Christian worldview or a Christian belief. And it seems so overwhelming at times to many that we are intimidated into silence. Because we don't want to be known as unsophisticated or uneducated or, you know, from the backwoods or, you know, from another time that we don't fit in this day and time. And so let me say that most, if not much, if not most of Christianity is at one time or another intimidated into silence. We don't want to proclaim that exclusive message of salvation in Christ because we're living in among hard-hearted people in very difficult times with an unwanted message. And we don't want to declare the authority of God's word. And we don't want to stand up for biblical morality because we feel that antagonism, that, that, that pressure. This is the world we live in. It's a climate of resistance, a climate of antagonism, but it's a climate in which you and I are called to be faithful witnesses. And so my message tonight using this text, looking at Isaiah's call, is to answer that question, well, how does that happen? How do, we, how do we move from silence to faithful witness? How do we become faithful bearers of an unwanted message to a hard-hearted people in a very difficult time? How can that take place? And for Isaiah, it didn't take place until he was overwhelmed himself by the grace of God. The grace of God became something new and fresh to him in such a way that he, again, he could hear the voice of God calling, who will I send and who will go for us? We don't even hear that today because we're so far from grace. We have so little experience with uh, the wonder of who God is. We have such little conviction about the horror of our own sin and our need of cleansing. And until that happens, we will not hear that voice saying, who will I send and who will go for us? When I read this text, I see the grace of God. I see Isaiah walking into a temple as he had probably done often. He didn't plan this. But something happens. Something happens in such a way that he is captured by the glory of God's holiness and brought to repentance and cleansing. And his life 
is completely turned around. He didn't plan it. It was God's grace that brought it to him that day. And I want to believe that that can happen tonight. I doubt that any of us really thought we're coming to worship tonight and this is going to be the night that God is going to get hold of my heart and my life in such a way that it will radically transform me, will put me in a new direction in my life. But that's what happened to Isaiah. That was the grace of God. And I pray for God's grace tonight to meet with us, to speak to us, to show us something that will move us toward greater transformation. We need a renewed vision of the grace of God in our lives. Here's what it's going to take. By grace, we need a renewed vision of his glory. That's what Isaiah saw. We need to see his glory. In the year again that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, and they've got the seraphim, and they've got six wings, and they're crying out with this antiphonal praise, holy, holy, holy. And another one, John, holy, holy, holy. And he is just... Isaiah is just captured by this glory. Let me make a few comments about the glory that he saw. First of all, we need to see God's unchanging glory. I don't think the writer is just adding historical information when he tells us that Isaiah had this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. We know that King Uzziah reigned for 50 years in Judah. And for the better part of his reign, he was a good king. But as his kingdom became prosperous, he became less thoughtful of God. He even became a little bit arrogant and proud about his spiritual privilege. And one day he enters into the temple and he usurps the office of a priest. And as a king, he does priestly work in the temple. And God smote him with leprosy. And he died. Chapter 5 ended with this statement. If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress And the light is darkened by its clouds. And in the year that King Uzziah died, it's it's like the writer is saying this light that had glimmered for some time in Judah, this good king slowly dimmed, the light slowly faded, and eventually with death, that king is gone. Contrast is that Isaiah saw another king, another king whose glory is unfading, it never changes. 
Uzziah had glory, a fading glory, a changing glory, a diminishing glory, and ultimately a glory that was gone. But he saw another glory, a king who regardless of the changes that take place in your life, in my life, in our world, in society, ups and downs of life, there's a king who sits on his throne, whose glory continues to radiate undiminished. This is what Isaiah is captured with, a glory that will never fade. And we need to know that, despite your circumstance tonight, there's a king with unfading glory still seated on his throne. Nothing about what's happening to you has phased God one bit. So we need to see his unchanging glory, but we also need to see his glory in all its magnificence. What is glory? The the Hebrew word comes from a word that means, you know, something heavy, something valuable, like, you know, gold has weight to it. I like the way that uh, one of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, describes this glory of God. And by the way, if you haven't read Paul Tripp, I encourage you to do It's not comfortable reading. Uh, but he's always probing beyond the surface, surface deep to the issues of the heart. But when he talks about God's glory, he says the doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, the beauty, the perfection of all that he is. In everything that he is and in everything that he does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Every characteristic of God, every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect. This is what we mean when we talk about God's glory. The stunning reality of this universe is there exists one who is the greatest, the most beautiful, the most perfect in every way. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, and gloriously perfect. There is none like him. He has no rivals. No valid comparison can be made to him. He is the great other in a category of his own beyond our ability to estimate, understand, or describe. Every part of God is glorious in every way possible. There's nothing more to be said. And because God is glorious in every possible way, he alone stands in this vast universe as the only one who is worthy of the worship, surrender, and love of every human heart. There's something about God and his glory that is so magnificent. If we could just have eyes to see it by the spirit of God, that we would be captured in such a way. We would be drawn to it to his glory in such a way like John wrote as he looks back over the life of Christ and he says the the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory 
glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There was something about Jesus that was so unique, unforgettable, that captured them. Now, if you're a believer, you caught that initially in your life. That's what brought you to repentance. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. It brought you to be willing to lay aside the false idols of your sin and self-indulgence or self-righteousness because you saw something better, something more glorious in Jesus Christ. We all had that, but it's obvious we all lose it. He saw his glory, unchanging glory in all its magnificence. We need to see his glory in all of its holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Many theologians would argue, and I think I would agree, that the essence of God's glory is his holiness. Though all of his attributes are interdependent on each other, in many ways, holiness is set forth as, as the, the center of those attributes. You know, when God swears, when men swear, they swear by something higher. I swear by heaven. But when God takes an oath, there's nothing greater than God. So when God swears, he swears by his holiness. In the Hebrew language, If you want to make a superlative of something, like if you want to say pure gold, not just gold, but pure gold, in Hebrew you would say gold, gold. And that means pure gold. And that's used often in the Bible in different ways. But the only time There is this triple repetition of an adjective. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this is just ringing in Isaiah's ears as he's captured by the sight of the glory of God filling the temple and the, the seraphim with their antiphonal praise back and forth. Holy, 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 absolutely holy is the Lord of hosts. I find it interesting that that's what they're crying out. He is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah realizes that. They could have been crying out, power, power, power. But we know that power without holiness is terrible. It's abusive. It's oppressive. Or they could have been crying out, love, Love, love. But love, we know, without holiness is just sentimental, 
wishy-washy. No, it's holiness that Isaiah is captured with. The absolute moral purity of God that touches his entire being, that touches every other attribute of his. He will always be wise and holy and all-knowing and holy and powerful and holy and loving and holy. He will never, ever sacrifice his holiness. Isaiah sees the glory in all its holiness. He sees that glory of his holiness touching all of life. Here he is in the temple and he says, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Of course, he understood just by the construction of first the tabernacle, then eventually the temple, that it was like the cosmos. It was like the universe being inside. You know, with the in the tabernacle, you had the blue curtain on top, the heaven. You had the, the basin of water, symbolic of the seas. It was a miniature of the world. And as far as Isaiah is concerned, this glory of God, though it may be hidden at times from eyes that have been blinded by Satan, this glory of God fills the entire earth. This glory which has as its essence holiness fills the entire earth. Moses realized that when he received his call. Because he's standing in front of a just a plain old bush that's on fire. And he's standing on ground that's just planet earth. And God says, take off your shoes. Because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. I like the way one man put it years ago. He said, for the Christian... There's no such thing as the secular and the sacred. For the Christian, all ground is holy ground. For a Christian who's aware of God's presence in this world, his presence everywhere. As Jeremiah said, am I a God at hand and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth. Even though we don't realize it. When you shut that bedroom door, there's a holy God there. And if you had ears to hear, perhaps you would hear the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of her of hosts. One of my friends, uh, Craig Beal, is a uh, to me is a great gospel-centered apologist, and he's written a lot to defend the glory of God and the glory of the gospel. But he uh, 
asks and answers the question, why do sinners not see the beauty of God's holiness? Listen to what he says. He says God's glory does indeed flow from his attributes. And unbelievers can see and know God's attributes, but they cannot see their beauty. They cringe at God's power and authority. They see God's goodness, but reject it or define it away. They know God's law, but prefer to do what is right in their own eyes. They see God's attributes in Christ, but seek to remove the mention of of his name from the public square and call the gospel foolish. The knowledge of God confronts unbelievers at every turn, but the love of darkness blinds them to his beauty. There is not an inch of planet earth that does not cry out, God is present and God is holy. Not one inch. There's not one room, one carpet in the White House, or the Pentagon, or the Congress, or your place of work, or your home, or your neighborhood. Where if you and others had eyes to see that you would realize that a holy God is present, that the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And with Isaiah, we need to see his glory and all of its fearfulness. His holiness His holiness that has not been appeased by atonement is dangerous. It's fearful. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. The the material inanimate world reacts to the presence of this one who is holy. So I have to ask, why don't I? Why don't you? What is it about us that we lack, that we cannot, as Craig Beale says, we know God is powerful, but we don't see the beauty of it. We know he's holy, but his holiness pushes us away instead of drawing us in as a place of security, as a sanctuary in life. But that is the first step to being moved from silence to witness. The first step is coming to see in a real and a fresh way this magnificent, unchanging, holy, earth-permeating glory of the living God and being able to be moved by that. Moved in such a way that secondly, we see our sin. This is the grace of God. It's painful, but it's grace. That God does not allow Isaiah in his silence, 
in his accommodation to his culture, in his joining the crowd. He doesn't let him stay there in his rebellion against God. But he gives him a glimpse of his glory and exposes him to his true self. Woe is me, for I am lost. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw his sin in light of God's glory. That is the only way you will see your sin properly. Your spouse may be able to expose you to uh, some certain depth of it. And your enemies may be able to show you your worst points. And you may be even introspective and discerning enough to be able to know a little of the evil that resides within you. But you will never see your sin in a life-changing way until you have seen it in the light of God's glory. By the way, this is why evangelism always begins with God. It doesn't begin with you. You know, you're unhappy and, you know, you don't have peace and you've got problems and, you know, maybe God has some way he can tinker with your life and help you out with that. It doesn't start with you. Because you will never see your real problem until you've seen God's glorious holiness. You may say, I'm hurting. I'm alone, I'm poor, I'm rejected, I'm treated badly, but you will never say, I am lost, until you catch a glimpse of that glorious holiness of God. We need to see our sin in light of his glory. That's why Paul says we all have sinned and come short. Of the glory of God. I've had a few people in life, through life tell me, uh, I'm not sinned. I've never sinned. They could have said it another way. They could have said, you know, I've never caught a glimpse of God's glory. So I really don't know who I am. Because that's the truth. And unless we've been captured by God's glory, there are other glories out there that will tantalize us, entice us, hold us for a while. But once you catch a glimpse of the superior glory of God, you will not want the inferior fleeting glories of this world. Why? When you can have the superior, eternal, unchanging glory of God, why would you pursue the inferior, changing glories of man? And yet, we're easily infatuated, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, the songwriter wrote, prone to leave the God I love. And if we're not constantly 
in the word and hearing the word and, and listening to the word and having God point us back to himself by the word and the spirit of God, then we give ourselves to lesser glories. Really, this is the work of the gospel. We preach the gospel so that people's eyes can be opened so they can see the glory of God. That's what Paul said. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Gospel preaching is to show us the wonder of what Christ has done for sinners, what God has done for sinners in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to love that and desire that, the glory of God opens up to us more and more as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, listen to Paul Tripp. He says, if there exists within each of us a hunger for glory, then one would argue that everything we think, desire, say, and done, and do is out of a quest for glory. We all want what is glorious in our lives, whether that's the fleeting glorious pleasure of a meal, the glory of recognition by peers or supervisors, or participating in the glorious work of the kingdom of God. We want glory. Where we chase after glory can vary, but one thing is for certain. This hunger for glory will never be satisfied by created things. Whether it's the recognition by peers, or the glorious pleasure of a meal, or of a great concert, or a movie, or even the glorious work of the kingdom of God cannot satisfy the deep need I have for unchanging eternal glory. Even if you could experience the most glorious situations, locations, relationships, experiences, achievements, or possessions in this life, your heart still would not be satisfied. Creation has no capacity whatsoever to bring contentment to your heart. Only God can satiate our hunger and in satiating our hunger, give peace and rest to our hearts. Secondly, we need to claim our sin, not only in light of God's glory, but we need to claim it with deep and clear confession. Woe is me. I am a man deserving of curse and judgment. I've seen God's glory 
And he's exposed me to myself in light of his glory. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He he confesses that he has not rightly represented the Lord. In that world that was difficult to preach in and difficult to live in. A world that was antagonistic to the gospel. The world that was doing everything it could to to diminish the people of God there in Judah. And Isaiah gave into it. I'm a man of unclean lips. Not because of what I've said. Not because I've cursed. I've been foul. I've been filthy. I'm a man of unclean lips because I've been silent. We will never rightly represent the Lord and bear witness, faithful witness for him until we have caught a glimpse of God's glory. Got a good understanding of our sin and our need for atoning grace and power. I love what happens as he makes this confession. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I think we would be mistaken to just think of that that burning coal as, you know, fire that's purging dirty lips. I don't believe that's the metaphor at all that he wants in our mind. That burning coal is a result of something that took place on the altar. That's where it was taken from. That burning coal, that fire, that had consumed that sacrifice that was made. That burning coal represents the holiness of God, which consumed that sacrifice that was made. But a holiness of God that is now a cleansing holiness. Apart from a sacrifice, the holiness of God just consumes everything that is evil. That's all holiness will do. You come into that holy of holy place without blood on the day of atonement in the Old Testament. You die. You cannot face, experience, taste holiness without atonement. Now that call is the evidence that God's holiness has been spent on that altar. It has consumed that sacrifice. It is now a cleansing holiness. A holiness that's been appeased by atonement. That cleanses Isaiah that day. Isaiah can only be cleansed because a sacrifice had been made that had appeased that holy wrath of God. That's grace. 
we need to catch a glimpse of God's glory. We need to see our sin as it really is, and that's all by grace. And then lastly, when we do that, we will accept our difficult but glorious responsibility. It's glorious, but it's difficult. It's not given to us in the exact same words as Isaiah's commission was. Isaiah's commission was pretty tough. It's basically saying, you know, go and preach and nobody's going to listen. Go and declare the truth about who I am to these people. And they will resist it. Because this is the nature of the message that God alone saves. It does two things. It saves and it damns, actually. It reveals the disposition of people's hearts. Thankfully, it can also change the disposition of people's hearts. But this was a difficult thing. Go and preach and your preaching is only going to increase their blindness and increase their hardness because of the resistance that is in them. And Isaiah says, like we would, how long? (laughs) I just got an email on the way up here from a friend of mine who's been at the same church for about 37 years and he says, you know, I'm not old enough to retire yet, but I no longer have the vision or the energy to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think it's good for me and the church to step aside. It was a long journey for him. And I I know the church he's in because I had pastored there at one time myself and he had been my assistant. And it difficult, difficult, difficult. I'm glad he stayed for 37 years. He'll still live for Christ. But how long? And God says, until everything is totally destroyed. Until such devastation takes place that it's like a forest where every tree has been felled and only a stump is left and even that stump is set on fire. And you ask, well, will, will anybody come to Christ? Well, will, will, is there any good in this? And he ends, to me, he ends the, uh, the section strangely. In this great devastation where the trees have been felled, the stumps have been burnt, there's this one last burning stump. He says, the holy seed is in its stump. There's still something there because God's not done. You may be done. But God's not done. And Isaiah, as you know, develops this whole thing of this branch of Jesse, this shoot of of Jesse that comes out of nowhere. It comes out of a burning stump where the world thinks 
There's no hope. It's done. It's over. And God says it's not over, you know, till I say it's over. Isaiah says, send me. I've seen your glory. I've seen my sin. I've experienced your gracious cleansing. Your holiness touched me and didn't destroy me. That's grace. I've heard your voice. Send me. Let's pray. May that be our cry this evening, Father. Give us a glimpse of your glory that will expose us to who we really are and show us our need of your cleansing and powerful grace that we can hear your gentle call, who will go for us, that we may say, here am I, send me. God, use us to be faithful bearers of an unwanted message to a hard-hearted people in a very difficult time, simply because you are worthy of that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.